Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. If you're a film, television, and theater person, I'm betting you're familiar with Katherine Wolfe's work. Let's start with the big screen. She was Jennifer Connelly's mom in the Oscar-nominated Little Children. Then there's Rhodey, Can't Dance, which was winner of the Founder's Choice Award, Wall Street 2, and Private Parts. Theater credits include An Inspector Calls, The Innocents and Otherwise Engaged, both of which were directed by Harold Pinter, Off-Broadway, Cloud Nine, directed by Tommy Toon, Bo Jest, and The Countess. There are also roles in regional theater at the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, the Philadelphia Drama Guild, and Seattle's Playhouse in the Park, to name just a few. Moving over to television, Catherine's played Aunt Sophie in Blue Bloods. She's been on The Blacklist, numerous Law and Order episodes, Sex in the City, Oz, Cagney and Lacey, The Jury, and now the Showtime series City on a Hill, which takes place in Boston in the early 90s. Catherine plays Kevin Bacon's sarcastic mother-in-law. Oh, one more theatrical piece of information. Catherine is the founding director of the Colleagues Theatrical Company, whose mission is to find and create work for seasoned professional artists. The New York Times described its mission as admirable and valuable. So, Catherine, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) You know, I ask this of my guests a lot. Does it ever surprise you, overwhelm, underwhelm you when people rattle off your credits? Well, I always think, oh, she said that. I'd like her to say this. And (laughs) She didn't say that, but she should have said this. I don't know. Is there any big sin of omission? No, I think the the like for instance otherwise engaged and also inspector calls were the last Broadway shows I did but mostly I've been working in television and film. Mm-hmm. So my theater credits have gotten kind of slim and uh I really adore doing television and film and who could not adore killing Kevin Bacon whenever I can. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, having a daughter that looks as beautiful as as, uh, Jill Hennessy, those are the two people I work with on the uh, set all the time. It's just the three of you. It's just the three of us. Wow, that's some trinity, isn't it? Isn't it something? Did you grow up wanting to be an actress? I had a very famous classical music family. My grandmother was Lea Lubuschutz, which I did a one-person show about. My uncle was Boris Goldovsky, who used to do the uh, Metropolitan Opera intermissions for 30 years. Uh, He had his own opera company. My brother played at the White House with Isaac Stern. And all of those people were heavy duty into music at the Curtis Institute and everything else. And (laughs) And then something happened when you came around musically? When I had to study with my grandmother, who had been trained in Russia, and I had, it was a cello, and I was supposed to practice (laughs) And it fell apart because of the fog in the cabin where I was practicing. I was so happy that it (laughs) fell apart. And I think my parents decided that music was not going to be my thing. But it was a given, in other words, that this was the family legacy, so to speak. So therefore, Catherine would be involved. I had to be something. That's all. We were all named after czars and czarinas of Russia. I mean, get it. That's what we were supposed to do. And it was the, my littlest sister, whose name is Lucy, when we got to her, there were six of us. Uh, my grandmother said, what is Lucy? I don't understand what Lucy is. And of course, you know, but it was an extraordinary experience because I thought everybody grew up this way. Well, talk about this. Did, when did your grandmother come to the States? After the revolution, she was first in 
Germany. Then she went to Paris. Alone? She escaped alone? or No, she came with her with Boris, who was supposedly her, her accompanist. My brother has just finished a book called The Nightingale Sonata, and it's about how she had three children by this very famous lawyer. <laughs> this is such a most amazing story because when I heard it, I went, I can't believe this. He never divorced his wife who lived down the street. And this is where? In, in Russia. Russia. Uh-huh. And she had her three children. She was very well-known in Russia as a very fine young musician. And when the revolution came, Onisim, who was her, I will say her husband, said, go to Germany and say you have concerts and take Boris. So she did. And then, of course, they had to figure out how to get my mother to Germany. And her siblings as well. And, well, it's my mother and the one sibling never left Russia. And it was so extraordinary to know what this woman did, that she found ways to get here, get there, get... And finally, she was playing with, um, oh God, at the Paris Opera, and uh, she was introduced to Sal Hurok, Mm -hmm. and he had heard her play. The empresario. Yeah, and he said, I'll manage you in America. So she came to America. And what year was this? In the 20s. All right. So she came to the States because she was, and I'm using the term in quotes, sponsored and encouraged, correct? And that she was going to forge a career here. And then Joseph Hoffman, who was the head of the Curtis Institute of Music, had her come in as the violin teacher. Mm -hmm. When they first started the Curtis Institute of Music, she came and she was really amazing because Mary Curtis Bach, who was the head who put the money into the Curtis Institute of Music, said to everybody that the, actually, Joseph Hoffman said that pupils had to be all year. They have to work all year. They can't go away for the summer. So take your uh, students wherever you want them to go. So (laughs) she went to the south of France. (laughs) And then uh, Mary Curtis Bach realized that this could be a little bit expensive. So she took her money during the war, and she had Rockport, Maine, made into a colony where her teachers could come and teach in the summer and where the students could continue, etc. And she gave my grandmother a house, and uh, they gave concerts in the house. And I saw the people around me all the time. Piedigorsky, the famous cellist, he was there. And uh, they all had great senses of humor, and they all were teasing each other all the time. And I just thought that people grew up this way. Yeah, it was normal. It never occurred to me that this was a kind of an amazing thing. So your mother, as well as your aunts and uncles, sort of followed in your grandmother's footsteps. No, I'll tell you what happened to my mother, and this is the story in my one-person show. My mother loved the lady who lived upstairs in Paris— who was an old Bolshoi ballet teacher. Uh, And she went to her house and she would take her little ballet classes because the woman had a little dog and a turtle and a strange little man was there with her. And my mother loved that. She was intrigued, She was totally (laughs) intrigued. She wanted to be a ballet dancer. Well, my uncle Pierre was Isidore Duncan's accompanist in Russia. And uh, one morning at four in the morning, Isadora and my grandmother came back from a party. My mother was sleeping at four o'clock in the morning. My grandmother went into my mother and said, up, 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 you will dance for the great Isadora. 
I mean, a little girl. Uh-huh. Put on your tutu and your ballet slippers and come out and dance for the great Isidore. Well, so my four in the morning, the little girl gets up. Does she what she's told, right. To do, and she went this way and she went that way and da-da-da-da. And Isidore turned to my grandmother and said, she has absolutely no talent. <laughs> And she, she can go back to bed now. She yeah. was taken out of the ballet school wow. like that. Wow. Right. And I have to tell you, one time at our house at Christmas time, they used to come and they used to do improvisations and everything. It was very funny. And my mother was really an extraordinary actress. They did the day my uncle played my grandmother, who only spoke Yiddish. And my mother played the new maid the day they were making borscht. <laughs> and in the beginning, she's trying and trying and trying to, to explain. And, and and my grandmother's zikruka zikruka zikruka. And at the end of this thing, she's weeping. And I thought, my gosh, she's extraordinary, my mother. But she just wanted to have six children and have a normal <laughs> life because it was not easy for her. Uh, you know, she was very much of a caretaker for my grandmother. Mm. And basically, that's what I grew up around. Where did you grow up physically? Philadelphia. Okay. And uh, my father was a businessman, very also talented man. He was the first person who made hand-locked bags that were designed for stores. I don't know if you ever remembered the nosegay from Bonwood Teller and uh, at Saks Fifth Avenue, there were bags that had little brown lines on them. It was the first bag that was, this is such and such as so, store. It was like... The, associated with the store, yes, you mean. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And he uh-huh. was the first designer. And he was a fascinating guy. And <laughs> they met because my grandmother was having a concert. My father's cousin said to Irene, who is my mother... Can you pretend you're a European girl? Because my cousin wants to meet somebody who's French. And she said, oh, sure, sure, I'll be glad to. Well, that was part of her DNA anyway, even yeah, though she, she was could, living here. She you could know. do anything, any yeah. accent. So dad came in, and Billy, the other man, said, this is Irene Goldowski. She said, hello, Billy, it's so nice to see you. Well, my father. Smitten? Smitten, oh, and then he couldn't get in touch because she was only 15 years old. Oh, and, wow. and the grandmother and the mother were not going to have anything to do with him until a friend of the family called and said, Luba, which was what we called my grandmother, his father put the cornerstone in for the synagogue. Oh, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> he got the street cred, yeah, right? Yeah, he was okay. <laughs> so that, I mean, there were so many stories and I... And in this book, The Nightingale Sonata that my brother just published, and it's going to come out, is the whole story of how the family got to the United States. And there's still family in Russia, which is really interesting. Wow. So where did you fit in the food chain in terms of where were you? I'm the third. You're the third. And so they assumed maybe you would have an affinity for music. And then when you didn't, were you left alone or, I mean, where did the acting part of this come in? Again, you're young, but was this something that you just took to or? No, I had to do something. I had to have attention. So I said uh, to myself, uh-huh. what can I do? And so I did children's theater first. I do remember it was really about getting attention. And I wasn't getting the attention that I wanted because you can't 
compete yeah. with people who are already successful, which I never knew until about 25 years into my career. It was a hard thing because my brother, who became a very successful pianist, he had to practice seven hours a day with yeah. my grandmother sitting in the end of the, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it was not an easy job. And uh, so I had to do something that had nothing Stake to do with Stake your claim, huh? Yeah. Did you have talent back then? I believe I always had a great deal of talent. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was fostered at some point. Like when you were growing up, were you in the school plays and did you take acting? I did acting modern less? dance okay. and then I did, I was in the acting, uh, this, we had a wonderful acting teacher and I did the Mad One of Shio and I played Constance, which I ended up doing in my own theater. I loved it and um, I really, it was, it was a great fun thing to do, to do it professionally, whoosh, the difference was amazing. Mm-hmm. Sandy Meisner said to me, you're not going to work for many years because you're a character actress. Oh, and then I say to people when now, I have to laugh at this because I said, well, that's really something. I, I had to wait this long, but, you know, I have been acting all, all along. along. yeah. But to get this kind of a thing is really wonderful. Did you go to acting school after? Oh, neighborhood Playhouse. All right. And then I worked with Sandy at the Musical Theater Academy at that time. He was there the first time. He so you there. left Philly for New York. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Was that encouraged in your household I mean, to pursue acting? I think they never thought it was anything until I got They humored you, kind of? No, they just... I didn't... When I when I got the thing with Harold Pinter, they kind of went... Which one? The Innocence or Otherwise was Engaged? Okay. No, it was The Innocence first. I stood by for Claire Bloom, uh-huh. and I played the ghost, and my mother kind of... This was a little bit amazing that this happened, you know? And uh, so that gave you again little, the street cred. Yeah. And you were how old? Goodness gracious, I don't remember. Well, in your 20s? I think uh yeah. Was that your first big break? I'd always done regional theater, but it was interesting how I got the Broadway show. When I was in children's theater hundreds of years ago, I was at the Agunquit Playhouse. And one, That's also Maine, right? Yeah. And one of the boys in the company of the Children's Company was named Johnny Handy, who ended up being the stage manager for Harold Pinter. And I asked him if I could read opposite everybody for Mr. Pinter. And he said, well, sure, I can have you do that. And that's how that happened, because I was brought in front of Harold Pinter where I would not have been otherwise. So there's a lot of happenstance, too, yeah. in your life. I mean, yeah. there are breaks, and then there are... I hate that right place at the right time. Well, but I can it, tell you about this one. Mm-hmm. There were three people. I had done Oz for Tom Fontana. The TV show. Yeah. Judy Henderson, who's the casting director, cast me in Five Things. And Michael Cuesta, who was directing the um, pilot had directed me in something called Roadie. I had three people, and I say to people, it has to happen when you've got a, f- a lot of people behind you, mm-hmm. where they, you know, you're the person. They want you because you're nice. They like, like you, and you can do what they want you to do. Sure, it's more than just the talent. What spoke to you more in terms of venue? Was it theater? Was it film? Was it television? I only can say that you want to work, and... If something comes up and it's like a play, I would do a play again. I The reason I don't like to do plays as much as I do television is I love rehearsing. 
And after about the two or three weeks, I get bored. On television, you can't do that because— the time constraints, right? Well, you, they just come in and you're doing it. Uh-huh. And you have to pray because you have to pray that it's coming out of you the right way. And it takes a, sometimes there are harder things to do on television, and they may take it a little bit longer, and they may shoot it from this side and that side and everything, but and then cut it. But in the theater, you rehearse it, you find what you think it is, and then after four weeks, you really have found something that kind of hooks into you, and then you need the work of really, 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 it goes on, and you just have to keep it fresh. Every performance, yeah. yes. I can't imagine what that's like when when people are doing eight and nine shows a week. She takes somebody like Rosemary Harris, who I stood by for, and she's just extraordinary. And I saw Rosemary when I was about to do Inspector Calls, and she went way out on a limb. And it was really, 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 really over the top. And I thought, oh, my God. And she did it in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. What she was doing was trying to figure out where she wanted to go with it, whether she wanted to go that far or pull it back or whatever. And then the performance after that was totally where she wanted it to be. And I learned so much from her. She's really, and a great lady, Mm -hmm. great lady. I do adore her. How does it feel to always be working. I know that may seem like a very strange... I don't always work. Whether it be your choice or their choice. You go through periods where you are, first of all, you're the leading lady. Then you're not the leading lady. Mm -hmm. You're the character person. So there's a space in there where they don't know what to do with you. Then you get to be the character woman and you're that for a while. And then there's the space and what are you going to be? And then you get to be me. (laughs) Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm old, much older. I'm Right. Well, of course. And there's not a lot of parts for much older. I guess we should get political about that. What does that say? You know, in this show, uh, there are two older women. We're both really older women. And it really gives weight because we are the generation. Like, for instance, the fight that I have with Kevin and the manipulation I have is that generation that wants it to be their way and then his generation you it's wonderful because it's it makes it all full and real and authentic yeah. yeah and i agree with you there aren't enough older women's parts and there's some marvelous older women actresses now in england it's totally different they'll use an older woman i bet that's a really tough road to hoe because what is it that you can do you can become somebody that they want to cast And I think right now, thank God, they love this part because it's so funny and so terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they want to write for it. So So you see a future here with this role that you might have not seen with other roles in the past. Yeah. Well, I also saw a future in um, Aunt Sophie, but not as much of importance as this. This is important because I think Jill married... (laughs) somebody that was like her mother. Kevin and I are very similar. We're both terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think that that's who she married. And you can see that. In the conflict. Yeah. Oh, he's so much fun to work with. And at the end of this, what he does to me, oh, my God. Is this one of the gigs that's a highlight for you in your career? Yes. 
It's wonderful, and I'll tell you the most wonderful part about it. Everyone on this set, hair, makeup, props, there is not a bad bone there. And it's because of Tom Fontana and Kevin Bacon, because it's what happens at the top. And there sure. is, everybody is wonderful. You come onto the set, they take it here. It's all like you're it's the most wonderful experience. So it becomes more than just a part because it becomes family also. And Absolutely. it becomes has that happened to you much? I did Oz and Oz <laughs> it wasn't exactly like a family. There is the most <laughs> I mean in Oz you went down to lunch and it was frightening because these guys were tattooed from their top to their bottom. And I played the nurse that killed everybody. So I did have some fun on that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and somebody saw it and said, don't let your mother see this because I swore a lot on that one. That was the prequel to this one. <laughs> and uh, the swearing. I guess I can swear okay on camera. So whatever. What's it like to have have years on stage, film stage, whatever, television, and then have to audition for roles? Oh, boy. Does that suck? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're exactly right. <laughs> I think the thing that is amazing is that you think that somebody would take a look at your website or your clips or something. And just say, I we want Catherine Wolf and then just hope that Catherine Wolf's available and then that ends that. That's exactly right, Sandy. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I have no power, Catherine. Just <laughs> FYI. But on the other hand, is that fair? You know, I, I Oh, because there's so many I mean, I have to tell you, women of my age, mil- you go into the audition and you see yourself ninety five times and everyone is good. Really good. Well, what do you mean? But in, in when you see yourself 95 times, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's sad because, as we were talking about earlier, there are less parts for older So women. you're all descending on this and one And they role. can be a person who isn't at all your type or somebody who you've seen all the time who keeps coming. One time, oh, this was so funny. I was up for a judge. Now I've done, a, I think, about five or six judges. And I went into this audition And I saw two very large black ladies, a Japanese lady, one of my friends who is just gorgeous and did a lot of soaps and everything, and I think somebody else. And so I just was interested. I said to the— At the competition, I said said to the black lady, so what are you auditioning for? She said, a judge. I said, the judge? And I told her which one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody in that room was auditioning for the same judge. We all started to laugh. So my friend, who is this gorgeous creature, took out her cell phone to take pictures of it because it was funny. I mean, you just go, what? Well, did you find that on some level liberating in terms of the eclecticism of who was there to get the I just thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't get upset about it because, you know, you go in for these things, you— you think you do the best audition of your life, and it's out of your hands. And they, yeah, and you either look like their mother or their grandmother, or whatever it is, and you get it or you don't get it or whatever. So you're not the ingenue. I think I was the ingenue for about a day, <laughs> but it doesn't matter anymore because you're just so happy to be working that it doesn't matter that no, it's a it's, stereotype. It, no, it's wonderful. I mm-hmm. mean, this character, I don't think she's really a stereotype. I think she's a very unhappy, angry woman who's had stuff happen to her, which, of course, it's wonderful to play. Is it 
unusual to have more than one thing going on at the same time? You can't have, for instance, with this one. Yes. You, you, you could, film in New York, right? Yeah, at the Steiner studio. Oh, in Queens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can't do another thing if you're booked. Yes. And what are you booked for? February to June. Oh, that doesn't seem so bad. No, and it wasn't bad at all. It was wonderful. And it isn't always, you're not always working every day. Of course. I remember there were two, uh, two and three were good. Four and five were very small for me. What do you mean, two and three? Episode two and three. Oh, were, episodes. Okay. Two were, uh-huh. They were very good. Episode four and five were very small. Mm-hmm. And I felt very sad. Yeah, I bet. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I wasn't seeing my friends, mm-hmm. you know. And, and was, also maybe you wanted a bigger chunk of the pie, oh, I mean to I, say. I would love to. And my sister, I, I said to her, the last one I had three wonderful scenes, terrific scenes. She said, you should be in there more. And I said, Sonny, I had three scenes. There's 75 characters in here. <laughs> and everybody has to get their piece. Yeah, sure. I don't know how they do it. How they say, okay, on this one, you're going to do that. And, you know, it's quite amazing how they manage to, you know. Do you think as you look over this role, and obviously it's the most current, but that this has been one of your best gigs? Uh, Well, it's, I guess so. I mean, I sometimes I think of the theater things. Years ago, I loved doing Man of La Mancha. And Do you sing? I did then. There were some other really kind of rich roles that I've done. On television, I would say this is the richest. Do you have any regrets in terms of what you haven't been able to do and that you had hoped to do? Well, I have the wait to do Shakespeare, but I wasn't asked to do it. It was a long time ago where I... You mean you have the chops to do Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a big emotional instrument, and I like to use it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm, you know, hoping will move forward a little bit more for me. That there's still time for you to get oh, a Shakespearean yeah. role. Uh-huh. Oh, Anything where there's a big emotional instrument being done. I don't mm-hmm. know that there's a lot of older women either in Shakespeare where they have any of those. But uh, I also love working with really marvelous directors. Well, that seems to be a no-brainer, no? Oh, it's the best. Yeah. Because if they really help you. I remember okay. Mr. Pinter saying to me when I was reading opposite everybody, he scared the hell out of me. I started to act opposite the little boy, and he said, Stop it! Stop it! And I was like, and when I came back on, he said to me, I'm sorry, I had to see the little boy, see what he was going to do. But he said, say to yourself, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to get upset. And by doing that, your emotion will come crashing to the fore. Mm -hmm. It was a great piece of direction. I mean, it was so wonderful because if you keep, you know, like if somebody dies or something and somebody comes up to you and says, Oh, you know, and you keep not wanting to fall apart. Sure. What happens is it's horribly difficult. And that he really was very helpful that way. So tell me what else you'd like to do. We're running out of time. Any uh, uh, any other fantasies of <laughs> of uh, theatrical fantasies? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I, I love working. 
And I think that you've been lucky, haven't I've you? I've been very lucky. I love working with wonderful people, and I've always been working with wonderful. It's amazing how lucky I am working with wonderful people. And I love to work. I love to create a character. There's nothing wrong with being a character actress, is there? Oh, as opposed to a leading lady. There's a richness, isn't there? Look at that... Judy Dench. Sure. I said to Metin, you're my Stephen Freer, because Judy, I heard him talking about Judy. It's wonderful what she does. I remember when I went to this uh, Screen Actors Guild something or other, and I said to them, why isn't my stand-in my age? And this woman came up to me. She said, I'm going to give you my card. Because I want to be your, you know, because she was my age. You mean they had somebody younger who they were going to make up to be your age? That she just was my stand-in. Now, the younger, the young woman or the woman who is my stand-in now on this one, she is probably 10 years younger, but she's of my age, which right, is great. Right, right, sure. And I think that's, we have to do that. We have to realize that people are wonderful at our age. And vibrant and vital. Yeah. It's a shame that that we have to do this. You know, it just should be a given. Yes. So we need more Catherine Wolves, don't you think? And we need more Sandys. Well, that's really nice. (laughs) We do. It's just always such a pleasure to meet all these really great women and hear their takes on life and what it is they've had to do and whether it's pulling up by the bootstraps or things, not, you know, every so often things come handed you know, on a silver platter. But for the most part, it's having to get out there and staking your claim. That's the extraordinary thing about us broads, you know? Exactly. You know, Susan Shulman said to me, Sandy Klein is really wonderful. And I think you get to know that the ladies, us, the girls, Mm -hmm. as I call them. The lay girls. The Mm -hmm. girls who've done it all have something very special. And I... I hope that the young people who are on their cell phones all the time (laughs) will get it. There's something more than a cell phone in your face. And a picture on Instagram. Right. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I've interviewed a lot of young women, too, obviously. But I think that there's this je ne sais quoi that these women have inside of being able, if you're not going to make it happen for me, I'm going to make it happen for me. And whether it's growing up and being a brown little girl and having your mom read you stories and not seeing yourself in those picture books Mm -hmm. or not seeing yourself on stage, whatever it may be. The joy of meeting these women, and listen, they haven't reinvented the wheel, but they've gotten out there and they're doing what they need to do and you've done what you need to do and you keep doing it and that's the empowering part of all of this. I must say I created a one-person show in a space when Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing anything. I created a theater Yes. And I said to myself, I can't stand sitting alone, not doing anything. So I did things. Mm -hmm. And we all have to do things. But, you know, what I want so much, we could get political here, I don't want to get too political, is that decency comes back and that respect. Yeah. Yeah. So that when you go to an audition or something, or when you meet other people on the street... Or you realize that we're all the same from wherever we come from. It, it just it just would be nice if that came back again. But I don't even like to go into that. <laughs> well, let's end with the fact that we're going to work to make that happen. Yes. Okay, we don't want to end on that kind of a note, no. that we can empower and we can soldier on and forge ahead. Hey, Catherine, thanks so much for sharing your life with me. Well, and it us. was wonderful, wonderful to 
be able to talk to you. How great. Here's hoping that there's definitely season two for On the Hill, as opposed to Over the Hill. (laughs) Very good. I love that one. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 